Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 in your Bibles here this morning. I hope you brought your Bible with you. I hope you have it so you can look at it and uh, ponder the words that I'll be preaching on. Ephesians chapter 3, of course, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians now and are making good time as we're going along. I'm looking forward to the, the second half because of all of the application that we're going to be seeing as uh, really the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is going to say, because in you, uh, this is how you need to live. These are the things you need to do in your life. This is what your marriage should look like. This is how uh, you should interact with your parents. Uh, this is how you as a church should come together. This is the way you ought to think. And this is the way you ought to live. So there's going to be a lot of application, very practical, in the second half of the book of Ephesians. But I've got to tell you, I've just loved the first half because of all of just the, the... It's so rich theologically, and really it's all about what God has done for us. And uh, also very enlightening as to uh, what he has done from his perspective. If we were to go around this room and we were to say, what has God done for you... Uh, you know, we, we would get a lot of answers. And a lot of those things that would be said would be true. Um, but it, isn't it wonderful to consider our salvation from God's perspective? I mean, that's really all that really matters, what he has done and uh, what he is doing in our lives. In chapter 3, we saw in the beginning part, in fact, in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul began to pray. And in verse 1, he said, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and he was about to say, for this cause, I bow my knee and I pray. And then he got, uh, well, I won't, I won't say he got distracted because the Spirit of God led him. Uh, but he, we, you might say he got off on a rabbit trail. Sometimes pastors get off on rabbit trails. You know, they're hunting one thing and then they end up off hunting something else. And, uh, well, Paul, he, he told these Ephesian believers that they'd been enlightened. You know, you know what God is doing. And, and here's what he's doing, and, and he doubled down, and he, and he reminded them that God, the, the mystery uh, that had been hidden from, for, for centuries, all throughout the Old Testament, the mystery was that, that God was saving Jews and Gentiles the same way, through Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. Um, he was saving Jews and Gentiles, and he was making Jews and Gentiles into one body, the body of Christ, with Christ as their head. And he said, that's a mystery. It used to be, but it's not a mystery anymore. You've been enlightened. Then last week, we looked at a few verses, I think verses 10, 10, 11, 12, and 13, that talked about, and Paul said, not only have you been enlightened, not only do you know what God's doing, but you've also been exalted. You've, You've been given a place, a position in Christ that is high and lifted up. And we talked about those things. I want to pick it up in verse number 14, because now Paul comes back to what he was originally going to do in praying. What he had started in verse 1, now he picks up in verse number 14. Now I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, verses 14 through 21. Would you look there with me? He says this, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole fatherhood or family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And then he says, Amen, which means, may it be so, may it be so. The, the last uh, half of this chapter really is about our enablement. The fact that God has enabled us to be who he always intended for us to be. 
It's, it's all about that God has enabled you, the church, born-again believers, older and younger, richer and poorer, um, different backgrounds, different goals in life. God has enabled you as a church corporately and as individuals, no matter what you're facing in life, God has enabled you. He's provided you with everything that you need to be who and what God wants you to be. As you go through life, that's not perfect. That's full of pitfalls and hardships and trials, struggles sometimes, joys, accomplishments. God has equipped you. He has provisioned you with everything that you need. Maybe you're here this morning and in, in, in your mind right now you're thinking, maybe this week you were thinking, I don't have what I need. Maybe it was a gift you were shopping for. Uh, and if your kids are anything like my kids, you know, they keep coming up with new things, you know, and it's like, sorry, time's expired, that's it. But, but, but if you're like me at all, you're like, oh, come on, we can find it. It's out there somewhere, you know, because you just want to give that. William is the worst. He keeps coming up with stuff. And, uh, uh, but, but you want to provide it for him. Listen, no matter what it is that, that you're going through, uh, and maybe it's just shopping for that one last gift, or, or maybe uh, with all the snow we've had, you were like, I don't have what I need. You came in, and you were like, honey, I don't have what I need. Okay, I, I don't know about you how it was for you. But uh, Paul's saying to this church at Ephesus, and God's saying to our hearts this morning, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you have everything. You have everything that you need. And then he talks about it in detail. We're going to do that this morning. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today. Thank you so much for this time of year, the Christmas season. We love the decorations and the smells and the family. But Lord, we worship Christ, our King, uh, the Lord of heaven and earth, um, almighty, unchangeable, holy. And Father, thank you for what you have done by your Son through us, uh, for us and what you desire to do through us. Father, use your word, I pray, this morning in our hearts to help us to understand. May we leave here with great hope and assurance that we have what we need. I pray these things in Christ's name and for our good and for your glory. I ask these things. Amen. So we're able. We have what we need. Now, when I say that this morning, do you agree with that? You don't have to nod your head. And some in this, in this room, everything is going well. And, um, you know, no hardship, no struggles. Things are just going well. You slept great last night, and you have for weeks, and things are just hunky-dory, right? They're just wonderful. Easy breezy, uh, right? Okay, I'll stop with those weird-sounding thing phrases. Uh, but, but for some in this room, that's not how you woke up this morning. You woke up early this morning, and maybe there was fear in your heart. Um, and you were thinking of a situation or a circumstance, and you were thinking, I, I don't have what I need. I, I, I don't have what I need to do what I have to do. And, and Paul is writing to these believers. He's saying, you have everything that you need. And it starts with uh, our enabling by our Heavenly Father. Now, some of us in this room are good fathers. Some of us in this room may not be good fathers. Sometimes good fathers aren't good fathers at times, but they're good fathers overall. Some of us were raised with fathers who were excellent fathers, providing for us, caring for us, nurturing us, talking to us. I can remember my dad, sometimes he would, he would take me out for a drive, which I enjoyed. And then he would want to talk about things, you know. And as I got to be a teenager, and by the way, these were such, such valuable times. But I can particularly remember one conversation, and he, he stopped on Webster Road. It, was, it still is dirt, and he stopped there, and there was a farm field over to my right. I'm in the passenger side, and I could see the house from where I was sitting. And he just pulled over, and he just wanted to talk, you know. And, uh, and the conversation was kind of one, you know, where I wasn't really all that comfortable, and I just wanted to... And, uh, 
And I can remember thinking, I think I can make it to the house from here. <laughs> but then I thought he'll just drive over there and pick me up and we'll, we'll have the same conversation again. But he was a good father to me. We had conversations. Sometimes I didn't want to have those conversations, but we had them anyway. Um, some of you in this room, you weren't blessed with a father like that, who had conversations like that. Uh, maybe some of, there are some in the room you don't even you don't know your father at all. You don't know him. Uh, you may not even know his name. The Bible actually says that God is a father to the fatherless. Did you know that? Um, look at look at our text, verse number fourteen. Verse number fourteen, and notice how Paul prays. And and again, our the secret of our enablement is our heavenly Father. Verse fourteen, he says this. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, and that word family has the idea of fatherhood. Okay, interesting word. Uh, of, of, Of whom the whole family or fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. And so I just want to point out briefly, and then we'll move on here, But the secret of our enablement is our Heavenly Father, and actually, specifically, it's praying to our Heavenly Father. Paul, as he he writes these believers, his heart is burdened for them. He longs for God's best for them. And yet, he understands that without God's intervention, his intervening on their behalf, uh, they aren't going to have what they need. They need what only the Father can do for them. They need God's enablement. They need the Father's enablement. And so the secret of our enablement is the Heavenly Father. In Matthew 7, in verse 7, I'm reminded that we're commanded to pray, and that's what Paul does here. He says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, Christ says, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that... Asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus to pray, uh, teach them to pray, and they did that in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, they, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We're commanded to pray. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. He began by teaching them in this way. He said, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, those that trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But he starts out, our Father. This is how the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, pray this way. Our Father which art in heaven. You ought to pray to your Father. And that's exactly what we find Paul doing here in verse number 14. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning, just briefly, uh, are you you taking time to pray? Are you taking time to pray? Um, You're a college student. I'm thrilled to have you all back. If, if all of you have flat tires when it's time to go back to school, it's because of me, okay? I love having you home. But as college students, do you, are you taking time to pray? Are you praying to your Heavenly Father? Are you rolling burdens over onto Him? Are you, are you casting, are you setting your dreams and your goals and your aspirations before the Lord? Young parents, moms and dads, young moms and dads, are you taking time to pray? Do you? Um, you, you, you were taking time to Google things, right? How to decorate the baby's room so they'll like it, like the baby cares, right? And you, we Google everything. We, we look to Google for almost every answer for everything. We fix our cars and our vehicles. We, we don't call the repairman now because we have Google and videos and, and it's true, isn't it? We can do things now that we never could do before. We never would have tried them before. But now we can have the tool to our house in two days and we can mess it up ourselves. <laughs> um, but parents, are you, are you praying to your Heavenly Father? 
Some of you in this room are going through some really hard things physically. Are you praying to your Heavenly Father? You know, when, when I say something like that, we, most of us would say, well, of course, if I go through a hard thing, that's when I pray. You know, sometimes even though we go, when, we, when we enter into a hard time in our lives, we don't pray even then. Sometimes we worry and we fret, but we don't pray. And so, very simply, notice that our enablement is found in praying to our Heavenly Father. But, but it also, the secret of our enablement is related to our access to the Father. Uh, have you ever wondered where, the, where this idea of father, of a, or fatherhood came from? I mean, where, who ever came up with that idea? The idea of a father. We have a lot of fathers in the room, and this is not a Father's Day message, though it could have been. But we have a lot of fathers in the, in the room this morning, but where, who came up with the idea of a, of a father? Have you ever thought about that? I hadn't. Um, but actually, Paul identifies for us where this idea of a father came from. He says in verse number 15, of whom the whole family, and the word family comes from a similar word to father. Fatherhood is the idea of this word family, of whom the whole fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. In other words, what Paul is saying is fathers in general are named that as a result of God the Father. Did you know that? And did you know that fathers in general are to be a picture of God the Father? And that's what he's saying here in verse number 15. There's a, there's a connection between the word father in verse number 14 and family in verse number 15. And Paul is basically saying, I bow my knees to the father from whom all fatherhood takes its name. God is the original father. He is the father of fathers. He's the ultimate father. He's the one whose father sh- fatherhood should be the pattern for all of us who are fathers in this room. We should all follow his example. Our fatherhood should, should be, follow his, should resemble his fatherhood because his fatherhood is perfect. And really, the closer the resemblance, the more human fatherhood expresses fatherhood as God intended it to be expressed. Again, some of us are good fathers in this room. Some of us aren't. Some of us had fathers who distorted or even destroyed the picture of God, the Father, the picture that God wanted us to see of himself. Some of us never knew our earthly father. Psalm 68 and verse 5 says that God is a father of the fatherless. And I want to challenge you before we move on from this thought this morning that all of us who are daddies in this room, some of us have children in the home, some of us have children outside of the home now, many of us have that. Many of you have that. All of us need to conform our fatherhood after God the Father. The secret of our enablement is found in prayer to our Heavenly Father. That's the first truth. Secondly, this morning, and this is where we'll spend our time, I want to notice the sources of our enablement. Because Paul really breaks them down. The Spirit of God opens this up, this truth up to us, for us to see. You're sitting here this morning and you say, you know what, I, I'm facing some matters, I'm facing some situations, I'm at a new phase in life, and I'm not exactly sure how to go through this. Uh, and and uh, Paul, as he writes to these Ephesian believers, he tells them there are some sources of God's enabling that you need to be aware of. And you need to live every day of your life knowing these sources exist. Uh, do we really have what we need to be who God wants us to be? Do we really have what we need to be and do what God wants us to do? What what has God given to us? What has he given to us that we're able to do his desires? Well, first of all, in verse number 16, he has provided us with the invincible spirit of God. Notice in verse number 16, the Holy Spirit of God, and he is invincible. Notice in verse 16, he says this, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now remember, Paul is praying for these things. In verse 14, he's asking God to do these things in the Ephesians' lives. He's asking God that, he would, that God would grant to these believers, that he would grant to you and to me, according to God's riches in glory that we would be strengthened with might by His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the inner man. 
God has provided sources of enablement for you and for me. And the first is the invincible spirit of God. What has God given us to lead us and to guide us through this life? The first source of the believer's enablement is the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. A child of God should not be governed. We shouldn't be controlled by instinct. Animals are controlled by instinct. Um, We shouldn't be controlled by our intellect alone, though we ought to use the intellect God's given us to use. But we're not to be controlled by intellect. Even brilliant people aren't always right. We We are not to be controlled by emotions Uh, because sometimes our emotions, our feelings, can lead us astray. Anger, fear, can lead us astray sometimes. We're not to be controlled by our will. We have some strong-willed people in the room this morning, most of us. But we're not to be controlled by our strong will, because even a strong-willed person can be a tyrant. (laughs) We're not to be controlled by our conscience, for even a conscience can be weak or warped, or even wrong. God is always intended for us to be ruled from within our spirit by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? You were born with a place, God created you with a place that he has always intended that place within you to be indwelt or filled by his spirit. And it has always been God's plan that he would lead us and comfort us and encourage us and teach us from that place within us by his Holy Spirit. In other words, as I go throughout my week this week, as a pastor or as a daddy, as a husband, God wants me, Seth Ferguson, to be led and to be directed, to be guided, and to be taught from that position within me But not by me, but by his Holy Spirit. We have law enforcement officers in the room this morning. We have uh, construction, we have contractors in the room this morning. We've got some shop workers in the room this morning. We have retirees in the room this morning. We have white collar and, and blue collar, right? We've got young and old. And yet God wants every single one of us in this room, it has always been his plan that we would be led, each one of us, led and directed by His Holy Spirit who lives within us and indwells us. He wants us to be indwelt, filled up, controlled by His Spirit, leading, leading us, guiding us, comforting us, teaching us, convicting us, encouraging us. I read it uh, stated, one, one one individual wrote it this way, the human spirit is the receptacle for the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 20 and verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Do you know that before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned, that the Holy Spirit was to fill the human spirit, and the Holy Spirit was to control man's thoughts? The Holy Spirit was to be the controlling factor, the deciding factor in man's feelings and man's decisions. The Holy Spirit, this is how God created us. The Holy Spirit was to rule man's body so that his whole life would be the expression and testimony of God. When Adam sinned, the Holy Spirit vacated the human spirit and his controlling principle was lost. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, when God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Much of what we see in humanity today does not reflect God's image and his likeness. Wickedness, unrighteousness, disobedience, uh, deception. Those Those are things that don't reflect God. God never intended for man to live in sin. And when Adam sinned, sin became the ruling principle uh, in the life of mankind. And so every person became subject to the law of sin and death. But when a person is saved, they are made alive spiritually. And that saved person can do what no unsaved person can do. And that is live in fellowship and communion with God. God has saved you, then God has enabled you by the Holy Spirit in your inner man, your spirit. And Paul prayed that the Ephesian believers would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in their inner man. Uh, 
do you need the strengthening of God in your life? And the answer to that is yes, you do. You need the strengthening of God. And in verse number 16, he's praised that these believers would be strengthened with might. And that is a powerful word there, with, with the might of God, by the Spirit of God in the inner man. He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God within the receptacle that God has put in within each one of us, the, our own spirit. The Holy Spirit of God leading us and from within strengthening us to go through every day of this week or every month of this year to come, every trial and every trouble, every decision, not every part of life is a trial or, or a, a temptation or a, a hardship. Much of life is not that at all, and, but they're decisions to make. God wants us to be strengthened with the might of God by the Spirit of God. This is how God created us to, to operate. Most of the world in which we live, most of the world in which we live will go about their, their tasks for this week with no regard for God at all, let alone Him within them because he does not indwell them because they are not saved. But if you're a child of God, the Spirit of God lives within you. You have what you need if we'll look to him, for him to guide us, for him to be our strength, for for him, the Holy Spirit, to be our wisdom. So we have the invincible Spirit of God within us. Secondly, I notice that we have the indwelling Son of God within us. Notice in verse number 17, the beginning part. Paul's continuing to pray. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, wait a minute. When I was a five-year-old boy and I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I prayed that day, I prayed, Jesus, would you come into my heart and save me? I might have said some other words, but I can remember those words. Okay, I prayed, Jesus, would you come into my heart and save me? I don't know where I got those words from. Um... But, but I believe that God did. He came into my heart and he saved me that day. Uh, in this passage, Paul's writing to believers. And yet Paul is praying to them. He's, he's praying for them. He's desiring for them that Christ would dwell, that he would be in a, a place of permanent residence in their life, that he would dwell in their hearts by faith. And so the second source of our enablement, I find, is the indwelling Son of God. You know that Jesus lived on the earth for about 33 years? Jesus. I'm talking about the man, Jesus. 100% man, 100% God, the Christ. Jesus was his earthly human name. Christ was the name of God. Christ in a human body, Jesus. And for 33 years, Jesus was inhabited by God, a man as God always intended for him to be. For over 12,000 days, Jesus walked on the earth and he talked. He laughed and he cried, he worked and he played. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, during that, those 33 years of life, he experienced pain. He experienced pleasure. He dealt with pressures. He was tempted and tried. He lived with human limitations and all without sinning. Jesus lived his life on his terms. In his character, he lived his life on his terms. Uh, in his conduct, how he went about life, he lived his life. Jesus lived his life on his terms. And those terms were righteous. In his conversation, his manner of life, he lived his life on his terms. He did this as a child. He did this as a teenager. He did this as a young man, a man in his prime at all times, in all places, under all circumstances, at home, uh, at school, at play, at work, in the synagogue, as a brother, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a babe, the son of Mary, as the carpenter of Nazareth, as the preacher from Galilee. Jesus lived life on his terms. And what were those terms? A life that was completely submitted and surrendered to the will of his Father. What are your terms for living your life? Well, my terms are I want to enjoy life. My terms are I want to live my life and I want to live it to the fullest and, and I want to be rich. 
I want to have more money than I know what to do with. Or uh, I want to live my life, my terms are, I want to live my life for, for stuff. Or, or my terms, I want to live my life for pleasure. I mean, that, that's the world around us. Man, mankind in general lives his life on his term, on his own terms. But as God's people, as people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, as people who, who are the abiding place of the Lord Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying to these believers, I'm praying for you that you would live your lives on his terms. Because that's how Jesus Christ lived his life on this earth. Jesus lived his life on this earth um, on his terms, and his terms were righteous. Our terms, having been born into sin and unrighteousness, having been saved from that, the old man, the flesh, still wants to live, we still, our flesh still wants to live our lives on our terms, which is unrighteousness. But we have the Spirit of God living within us. We have Jesus Christ himself living within us. Within our hearts, he identifies for us here in, in this verse. And Paul is saying to you and to me, I want you, my prayer for you, is that you would live your lives on his terms, not on your terms. Jesus lived his life on his terms, completely submitted and dedicated to the will of his Father, empowered by the Spirit of God. And really, you know, Jesus' life demonstrated for us, it demonstrates for us what God had in mind when he created mankind. Jesus' life demonstrates for us what God has in mind for your life and for mine. Jesus' sinless life was filled with the love for God and for mankind. And oh, how the world needs Jesus today. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if Jesus would, would take up, would he, if he would move into flushing? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus would be a member of Trinity Baptist Church? Wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus was a part of your Christmas celebration this year? Well, this Jesus, Paul writes in this passage, still lives. He doesn't only live in glory, exalted on the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ lives in you. He lives in you. And if during his earthly ministry he lived his life on his terms, we know for a certainty that Jesus Christ still desires to live his life living in you on his terms. Look with me over to Colossians chapter 1 for just a moment. Colossians chapter 1. It's a couple books over. Uh, To your right, Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 25. I'm going to read... I'm going to identify for you another mystery that Paul talked about and wrote about. And uh, this, is, this is a mystery that God doesn't want to be a mystery to you and to me. And you, you might be here this morning and you're 13 years old. God wants you to understand this, okay? He wants you to live your life. He wants you to go to school this week, just for a half a week. But he wants you to live and go to school and, and live in your parents' home knowing and understanding this mystery in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 25. I'll read down through verse 27. He says in verse 25 of Colossians 1, Paul writes, Whereof I am made a minister, a ser- excuse me, a servant, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. It's It's obvious to his saints. It ought to be obvious to you and me. What's the mystery? Well, look at verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is it? Which is Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ living in you. That's the mystery. Hid from eight for ages. Thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people never understood this. They never knew about it. But Paul says, you know about it. And what is the mystery? The mystery is this, that Christ lives in you. And what he's talking about as we're studying here in chapter 3 of Ephesians is this enablement to believers who some of them no doubt were thinking, I don't have what I need. I don't have what I need. 
to do what I need to do. And Paul's saying, you do have what you need to do and be what God wants you to be, to do what God wants you to do. You have it. And what is it? It's the invincible spirit of God living within you. And it is the person of Jesus Christ living within your hearts. And to every one of us in this room who are born again, this truth is for us. Whether we're young or whether we're old, whether we're a pastor or a deacon, or maybe we're just a new church member, or maybe you're not even a church member at all yet. This truth is for you if you're a child of God. Christ lives within you. Paul talked about this on several occasions. You can turn back to Ephesians chapter 3, but listen as I read from Galatians chapter 2. Paul wrote in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says Christ lives inside of me. Later on in in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul made this literal statement. He said, for to me, to live is Christ. Paul literally said, for me to live on this earth is for Christ to live on this earth. When I mentioned before, wouldn't it be great if Jesus moved into flushing? I was kind of joking a little bit. But you know that if Jesus lives within your heart and you live in flushing, do you know that Jesus, in a very real way, lives in flushing? You know what my neighbors need? They need Jesus to move in next door. Well, if Jesus lives within me and they're my neighbors, then Jesus does live next door to my neighbors. The question is, am I committed to what Jesus is committed to? Which is a big commitment, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus was a member of Trinity Baptist Church? Well, he should be. If you're a born-again child of God and Jesus lives within you, you and I need to be committed to what Jesus would be committed to. Uh, you see, Christ lives within us. He, we have what we need. He, he, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our hearts are Jesus' home and our bodies become his temple when we take God at his word. And it is the will and plan of God that Jesus Christ would live his life through us just like Jesus lived his human life in the power of the Holy Spirit and in constant partnership and cooperation with the Father. So we are to live our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit and in constant partnership and cooperation with the Father. You know, really, the genius of the gospel or the genius of Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. Most of us have discovered that we can't imitate the life that Jesus lived. Have you tried that? What disappointment. Uh, be ye holy as I am holy. We gave up on that a long time ago. But Jesus within me is holy. I can say yes to him. He can live his life through me. Christianity is the living Christ living his life through us. And the question would be this, are you experiencing Christ's life being lived through you? What what, what would that look like? Peace. It would look like peace in the midst of adversity. It would look like hope in in, in, in the face of terrible situations. Joy in the midst of a storm. It would look like righteousness when you're surrounded by unrighteousness. It would look like honesty when you're facing the consequences. If Christ dwells within us, do we have any responsibility at all for him living his life through us? That's a good question. Or do we just kind of say, well, whatever, and Christ lives in me, and whatever I do, it's his fault. Do, Do we have any responsibility at all for him living his life through us? And the answer is yes. Christ took up residence in our lives When we exercise childlike faith, and I can use myself as an illustration for this, there was a five-year-old boy when I said, God, will you forgive me of my sin and come into my heart and save me? God saved me. That was childlike faith, taking God at his word. I I agreed with what God had said. I was a sinner. The Bible said that. I deserved death and hell. The Bible said that. 
And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I believe that. I took God of this word and God saved my soul that day. And I passed from death, deserving of hell, unto life. And you know what? The very same way that I received Jesus Christ as my personal savior, what, let's see here, 23 years ago, 33 years ago, is the very same way not that old yet, right? That's, it's the very same way that I'm supposed to live my life today. Don't miss that. The very same way I received Christ as my personal Savior that produced everlasting life is the very same way that I have to live my life every day. Not praying over and over again that Jesus Christ would save me, but by daily, over and over again, truth by truth, taking God at his word. That is how Jesus Christ dwells in my heart by faith. That, as I take God at his word, one truth at a time, that is how I have hope when a situation looks hopeless. That's how I have peace when there's nothing peaceable about what's going on at all. When I take God at his word. Now between you and me, I'm a human being, you already knew that. Between you and me, I don't always take God at his word. How about you? And when I don't, I lack peace. I lack hope. I lack righteousness. I lack holiness. Are you following me? To the point where even a child of God, when we don't take God at his word, and, it's, and Jesus Christ does not dwell in our hearts, he doesn't by faith. Oh, we're still saved. It's not a matter of losing our salvation, but, but he's not living his life through me. When, when, that, when that happens, the fruit of the Spirit isn't being, uh, isn't being uh, given forth through my life by Christ in my life. All manner of unrighteousness can fill those voids. That's not the way God's left us. He hasn't left us hopeless. Uh, I've saved you from death and hell. He didn't leave us Save from death and hell and do your best and stumble and fall and, and, and it's just a loss. And that's not how he saved us. He has enabled us by the person of Jesus Christ within us. The genius of the gospel is, the, is found in the fact that Christianity is Christ. He lives his life through us when we exercise childlike faith and understand that Christ lives within you and me. Take him at his word. There's a th- third enablement third source of enablement I noticed in our passage in verse 17, the latter part and in, in following, and, and this source of enablement is the amazing love of God. So the sources of enablement, first of all, the invincible Holy Spirit of God within us, the person of Jesus Christ living in our hearts as we take God by his word, and the amazing love of God. Notice in verse number 17, the latter part, I'll read down through verse number 19, the beginning part. It says this, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Now remember, Paul's praying for this, that they be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Really, Paul says, I want you to know something. I want you to comprehend something that's incomprehensible. Thanks. Great. That's setting the bar a little high, Paul. I want you to comprehend. I want you to know the love of Christ. Remember that idea of the word know has the idea of, I want you to experience it. And not just as the recipient, but as the giver. We've all experienced the love of Christ in that he died for us and gave his life for us. But Paul's talking not just about as a recipient, but as a giver. I want you to know what it is, what it was for Christ to love you. And I want you to love other people the way Christ loved you. And and he describes it in really an incomprehensible way. He talks about this depth and, and height. You know, really, we're enabled to live the life that we ought to live by the amazing love of God. Love is not something that a Christian adds to his life, by the way. 
Love is the root and foundation of the Christian life. You see it there in verse number 17, the latter part, that ye may being rooted and grounded in love. 1 John 4 and verse 16 says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, he tells us. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. And in, in Paul in this passage, in verse number 17, the latter part, you see it there, he uses the world of a biologist and the world of a builder to illustrate for us the importance of a right start or being rooted in the right thing. A plant grows well if it's rooted in good soil. A building grows beautifully and lasts a long time if grounded on a good foundation. Just as a plant needs good soil to grow and be fruitful, so too does our, do our Christian lives need to be rooted in love, or our labors and our service will wither and dry up. We've all, I think many of us have experienced that, where our love for God has dried up, and so our service to him dries up. A building needs a good foundation. The everlasting love of God was put on display during the earthly life of Christ, and all the world saw it. God wants the world to see his love through us, the body of Christ, the church. Well-organized programs are important, but cannot replace the love of God. Accurate Bible teaching is vital, but cannot replace the love of God. Disciplined lives are valuable, but cannot replace the love of God. And we can have all of those things, but without love, it all amounts to nothing. In fact, years later, John wrote to the church at Ephesus and revealed to them in Revelation chapter 2 that they, this very church, the church at Ephesus, had left their first love, Jesus Christ. Is it possible for me to leave my first love? Is it possible for my love for Christ to grow cold? Is it possible for me, for my love for you as the body of Christ, to dim? I believe it is. And Paul, as he writes to these believers, he says, the source of your enablement is found in the, in the Holy Spirit and in Christ living in your hearts, and it's found in the love of God. It's found in the amazing love of God. And notice in verse number 18, he challenges us to comprehend, to eagerly take, and to consider the love of God. In verse number 18, he talks about the length of God's love. Well, let me ask you, when, how long is God's love? When, when did God start loving you and me? How long is God's love? Did Did God begin to love us when we responded to the drawing of of God the Father to salvation? Did God start loving us when we were born? Or when God created Adam and Eve? Or maybe when he decided to create mankind? Or maybe when he he, he created the the heavens and the earth? When, When did God start loving you and me? The answer is, God's love never started. Because it's always existed. God's love is eternal because God is eternal. God is love. So when will God, if it never had a beginning, his love, when will God's love end? Will he ever stop loving us? What if we are disobedient to him? What if we fall into sin or bring shame and dishonor to our Savior? Will God stop loving us then? And the answer is God will never stop loving us. Because the love of God has no beginning and it has no end. That is the length of God's love. No beginning and no end. What about the breadth of God's love? How wide? How wide is God's love? God loved the rich young ruler, that arrogant lawyer. Or, and, he, and he loved the woman caught in adultery. God loved Nicodemus, who couldn't understand what he was teaching him. He loved Zacchaeus, that tax collector, dishonest. Christ loved Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. He loved Caiaphas and Annas, the scheming priests that were full of hate, who illegally judged him through the middle of the night. Christ loved King Herod, who mocked him and killed John the Baptist, Jesus' friend. Christ loved Pontius Pilate, who chose political gain in pleasing the people over justice. 
And wonder of wonders, Christ loves you and me too. The love of God is wide enough to embrace everyone. How about the depth of God's love? How deep is God's love? Well, Christ came down from the glories of heaven to Galilee. From Galilee to Gethsemane. And from Gethsemane to Golgotha, where he hung on a cross. And from Golgotha to Hades itself. How deep is the love of God? How about the height of God's love? How high is God's love? Well, Christ Jesus arose from the dead and he's sitting at the right hand of God. Christ reigns in splendor and in the brightness of the noonday sun. Christ is adored and he's worshipped and he's praised there in heaven. And yet Christ has not forgotten us. How high is his love? I'm reminded of, of Joseph while he was in prison in Egypt. And the butler told Joseph, I'll remember you when I stand before Pharaoh. And, uh, and then he got, to stand before, he, he got to stand before Pharaoh, the butler did. And what happened? Did he remember Joseph? No, he forgot Joseph. Well, today Jesus Christ is high and lifted up, raised from the dead, seated on the right hand of the Father. But has he forgotten us? We are already seated with him in heavenly places. Paul has taught us, and yet Jesus has promised in John chapter 14 and verse 3, I will come again that where I am, there ye may be also. How high is God's love? We can know God's love. Look at verse number 19, the beginning part, and to know the love of Christ. What am I supposed to say about the love of Christ? What am I supposed to say about the love of Calvary? What can I say about the love that is stronger than death? What am I supposed to say about the love that will not let us go and love that suffers long and is kind? Can we know this love? I tell that to my children. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And sometimes they'll quote it with me. They'll chime right in, you know, and they'll quote it with me. I mean, we were commanded to, to live this way. And Paul's going to talk about that later in Ephesians, that very, those very words. He's going to say, this is how you need to live. This is how you need to love one another and how you need to interact with one another. This is the love of Christ. This was Paul's prayer. And and folks, this is our enablement. The indwelling Spirit of God, the invincible Spirit of God, Christ living within our hearts through us. The amazing love of God and God himself. And God himself. Notice in verse number 19, the latter part. We'll end with this. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants you as an individual. He wants us as a church to be filled with all the fullness of God. And really what Paul is enlightening us with is that God himself is the source of our enablement. God is sufficient for our need. Whatever that need may be, we we, we are to be progressively filled up with God's fullness. And Paul prayed this for the Ephesian believers, this truth passeth knowledge. He's already said that, but it is exactly what Paul prayed for. And if there were a man who was filled with the fullness of God, if there ever were a man who was filled with the fullness of God, it was Jesus during his earthly ministry. What would a 12-year-old boy look like who was filled with the fullness of God? We have some parents in this room this morning who have 12-year-old boys. Is it possible for a 12-year-old boy to be filled with the fullness of God? What would a dad look like who was filled with the fullness of God? And to answer that question, we only have to look at the life of Christ. What did Jesus do when he was confronted with the sorrows of mankind? You and I face sorrows. The world, the sicknesses in the world, the diseases, the poor, people who are brokenhearted, demon-possessed, rebellious, living in religious error, What would a man filled with all the fullness of God do when confronted with the oppressors of a nation? Jesus faced that. Or a close friend with treachery in his heart. What would he do if his family thought he was going to to extreme lengths? What would he do with his money? What would he do with his extraordinary talents and time? What would a man who would be filled with the fullness of God do when faced with betrayal and injustice? What would he do if someone spit in his face? 
What would he do if he had to endure a painful, lonely, and horrible death? And to answer those questions, you need only to look at the one who was filled with the fullness of God. Look at Jesus. And when Paul prayed that we would be filled with the fullness of God, he was praying that we would be like Jesus. That's what he was praying. And what was the secret to Jesus overcoming the very thing that we face today? All of the things we face today. And the answer to that question is obedience. Faith. Look back at verse number 17, the beginning part, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Take him at his word. If God in his word says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. If God says in his word, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church, then take him at his word. If he says to wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, then obey his word. If he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, honor thy father and thy mother, then take God at his word. Because when you and I take him at his word, we are actually allowing Christ to take up residence in our hearts, his rightful place, and it is from that position, by his word, being lived through us, that God accomplishes his plan in our lives. I think, I think it's sad to some extent that we as believers today, uh, and I don't think it's anything new about today, I think it was the same in, in the church of Ephesus day, where they, they wanted to have all that God, all that they needed for the day they were living in, all that God promised, all that God was and is, but probably they face the very same temptation you and I face, and that is to set aside his word on a dusty shelf somewhere and, and, and fill our lives with the other things of life and set aside what he has said. Take a few here and there when convenient and set aside the rest and expect to have all that we need for today. When actually the answer is Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, by taking God at his word. You can't exercise, you can't take God at his word if you don't hear it. You can't, you're not taking God at his word if you don't obey it. Take God at his word. You know, really, what was the secret to Jesus overcoming the very things that we face today? And the answer is obedience, taking God at his word. Hebrews 10 and verse 7, Jesus said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. To do thy will. Philippians 2 and verse 8 tells us that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you and I were to go there, if we could go back in time, we were to walk up the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at, it's at night. We walk into the Garden of Gethsemane, up the hill. And we pass the apostles. They're asleep. Shh, they're asleep. Peter's asleep. James and John. They're all asleep. They couldn't stay awake. And we, we come a little closer, and there we see Jesus, a man filled with all the fullness of God. And he's praying. And, of course, he knows what's coming. And the Bible talks about how he had begun to sweat great drops of blood, as it were, great drops of blood. His physical body was beginning to break down under the load he was facing. And he's praying. And what does he pray? What does he pray there in the Garden of Gethsemane as we, as we stand there and we listen? What is Jesus praying? Well, listen, listen to Matthew 26 and verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. You see, the secret of being filled with the fullness of God is obedience. If I want to be a pastor filled with the fullness of God, I need to say yes to him. If you want to be a, a believer filled with the fullness of God, a mom or a dad, a grandma, a grandpa, a young person, a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old boy, if you want to be a 13-year-old boy who is filled with the fullness of God, then say yes to him. And this really brings it home in a very simple way. Say yes to him. Because Jesus, during his 
during Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry as a man, what did he do? He said yes to his Father. And he was filled with the fullness of God. And I believe with all my heart, you and I as God's children today can be filled with the fullness of God. We have everything that we need to face what is ahead if we will say yes to his word.